Is anger ever a good thing? Is it something that I should ever, ever have? Well, for that, we we don't want to just kind of think about this in our own experiences and in the history of the world. We want to think about this in terms of God's Word and what He tells us the sweet attitudes of the Christian are. So we're going to return to Ephesians 4. This was kind of our jumping off verse a few weeks back. We talked about um, the, the essential matters of putting off and putting on from Ephesians 4, 22 and 23 and 24. And, and tonight we're going to, we're going to look at um, the attitude of anger and we're going to approach this with a bit of a, a Bible study format and just quickly uh, as we get to our passage we're going to kind of look at anger kind of throughout scripture don't have a lot of time to go through a lot of examples but just look at a few examples of anger in the Bible and we're going to ask a few basic questions but before we get into any of that let's pray and just um, ask God to help us truly understand his word and truly apply it this evening. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you that we can come here. We're thankful that we can learn from your word about what it means to follow you and be called by you. And we don't need to be left to ourselves or to our own imaginations or to the, the whims of our emotional moments, but that we can be governed and directed by your word and empowered and strengthened by your spirit. We pray that your word would be clear to us. pray that you'd uh, use me to be helpful for all of these students. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I, I want you to be in Ephesians 4, but like I said, let's kind of take a running start at it from uh, kind of uh, the picture of anger that we see in periodic places in the Bible. Here's a few stories for you. Ask a few questions. Um, what is going on? Yeah, think about these stories and think about what is going on. What is the person in this story perceiving to be wrong that he or she is angry about? Or, uh, what are the feelings that this individual or person is displaying about anger? And, and, then, and then also ask yourself the question, uh, what does this anger result in? What, what are the consequences of anger? What kind of actions does the anger in these stories result in? Or just ask yourself a basic question, if you don't want to think about any of those questions, is anger good? Or is anger bad? So, for my middle schoolers, that's your question. For my high schoolers, you got those hard questions. Not really. There, uh, the first story is from Esther chapter 1. I'm going to read out of this sheet for, for speed purposes. Um, this is Esther 1, 10 through 12. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Just, just consider this account of anger. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, always a good start, he commanded... Uh, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Bagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. That's why I didn't ask you to turn here. I didn't want you to actually see how those names were pronounced. Uh, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king of Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. So just so we're all on the same page here, this is a Persian pagan king wanting to show off his queen, his wife, to all of his royal attendants and make them ooh and ah over her and mainly ooh and ah over him. And then verse 12 goes on. Uh, 
to bring Queen Vashti, oh, sorry, verse 12 continues in the middle of 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Ladies, Queen Vashti was everything you wanted. No, uh, <laughs> there, let's continue. Um, at this, the king became enraged. And his anger burned within him. And then a lot of things happen. And then verse 19 happens. The eunuchs say to the king, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. So, uh, what do we see? We see this king, this pagan king, being angry there. What are, what are the feelings that come from this anger? He is enraged. He is burning within him. And then what does he do? His anger m- makes him separate from someone. That's what anger does. It separates. It separates you from other people. But th- that's a pagan king. But it's not just a problem that pagan kings have. It's not just a capability, capacity that pagan kings have. Uh, Consider with me 1 Samuel 18. This is a Jewish king. This is King Solomon. This is right after David defeats Goliath. As they were coming home in 1 Samuel 18, 7 through 9, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women... Women are always connected, I guess. Uh, The women came out of the... I'm sorry, that's not true. The, The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David, David, his tens of thousands... And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed a thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Once again, is anger good or bad? Well, it seems like it's bad here, right? Uh, we see why Saul becomes angry. He gets angry because David is getting the praise that he himself wants. And this results in him having these feelings of displeasure and being very anger, angry and having this inward, inward suspicion that he carries with him. As a matter of fact, that's the action that anger results. He eyes David from that day forward. Notice, in one sense, sometimes anger results in physical separation. And in another instance here, it, it results in kind of this relational separation. I'm going to be suspicious of you from this day forward. But we also should know in the Old Testament that this isn't a human capacity. This is also a capacity that we see in God himself. For in Exodus 32, when the Israelites worship the golden calf, this is said of the Lord God. Exodus 32, 7 through 10 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, 
go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Notice here, it is God himself who has anger. And the reason why he is angry is because the people have corrupted themselves. They have turned away quickly from him. He has faithfully brought them up out of Egypt, and yet they are stiff-necked. And so this results in anger. And notice the language, the strong language that is used of God. My wrath may burn hot against them. And what does God do? Well, he, 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 he threatens to separate, right? And here we, here we see once again, once again, right? Anger causes a separation to occur, but this is because of God's holiness and our sinfulness. But this is not just an Old Testament God problem. We actually see in the New Testament, in Jesus himself, anger displayed. We see this in Mark 3, 1 through 6. This is of Jesus. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to, to save life or to kill it? But they were silent. And then notice this, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees, however, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. We see here a scene of the Pharisees trying to trap and trick Jesus. And it's a very ironic scene because they are showing no mercy for this man with a withered hand. And they are claiming it is a lawful mercilessness. They're looking for an excuse, really, to release their anger. Matter of fact, that's what we see at the very end of the story. We see them plotting how to destroy him on the Sabbath of all times. But, but really what I want you to see here is the anger of Jesus. He is angered at their hardness of heart. And, of course, this results in what? It results in judgment, but it also results in doing good. You see that in, in Christ Jesus himself. Now... Now, what do we do with all of those stories? What are the conclusions that we should make from all of those things? Well, here's some basic conclusions we could make about anger just from those stories alone. We see that anger is often bad. I only got to give you one example, but there's, there's plenty more that I could show you. Anger is often bad. Anger often leads to other sins and other problems, doesn't it? it is, it's a catalyst of many problems. Anger quickly becomes out of control. If we continue to read in 1 Samuel 18, we see that Saul is dominated by his anger, although it doesn't feel always like anger. And so we see here, we see that anger is perilous in one sense, right? It is dangerous to you. But we also see that, that anger is not always sinful. 
we see that anger is at times a part, a key aspect, a key capacity of what it means to be godly. And we could even say, if we were to look in Exodus 32, 15 through, through 20, we would see Moses, when he sees what the people are doing, he has the same anger. It is also seen in God's people, we see this as well. Sometimes God's get, God gets angry, and sometimes God's people get angry. So we can make two conclusions, I would say, about anger just from that like overview of Scripture, right? Anger is perilous, but anger is also precious. There's, there's a good thing here. And, and, and I would say this, according to our passage that's in Ephesians 4, we all need to be good and angry. In fact, you must be angry if you want to be fully what God has made you to be in Christ Jesus. You must have a capacity of anger. Now, we want to carefully qualify what that anger is. So here we are in Ephesians 4, and we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. And just to give you some context here, uh, Paul is concerned about the unity of the body of Christ, and he is giving directions here for maturity and for unity, and we see that he is, he is, he is guiding them to avoid sins that separate, that cause disunity, and to pursue the holiness that causes maturity and growth. That's what he's calling for. He's calling for the maturity of the body of Christ, as we see there in verses 13 and 14 and 15. This is what he's after. This is, this is what's leading all of these exhortations. And this leads us to the exhortation in here in verse 26 notice what he says this is what the word of god says be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity for the devil that's god's word what an extraordinary two verses There's two basic commands here that don't seem to really go together, and that is why, in the wisdom of God, they're right next to each other. Be angry. Don't be angry. Figure that out. Ponder that in your bed tonight. We we see that anger is bad. Even here, verse 31 of the same chapter, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So there there is a bad anger that we are... To not be. But in the same breath, we are told to be angry. So we see here that anger is precious. Anger is something commanded by God. And it's also perilous. It's a razor's edge that we as believers need to walk. And here's the basic message, right? We are going to look at the two aspects of anger. And we're going to argue tonight that anger is a God-given capacity that you must have if you want to be faithful and follow after Christ Jesus. Anger is one. It is Precious and anger is number two is perilous. That's what we want to look at here tonight. And I want to capture your imagination with the idea that anger is in fact a capacity and a gift that God has given you that is essential for following Him. It's a gift. It's a precious gift. It has incredible capacity for good 
and it has incredible capacity for evil. And a lot of God's gifts are this way, right? Think about your speech. God has given you the ability to speak. You have incredible ability for good, and you have incredible ability to do bad with it. But God has given you the capacity to speak. Think about marital, marital intimacy, right? Uh, your, your abilities to, to, to enjoy someone of the opposite uh, gender. Yeah, this is incredible ability for good. And it can be used with incredible evil as well, right? You, you could say there's lots of things. There's lots of gifts that God gives me that have an incredible capacity for good and evil all at the same time. But it is a God's gift anyway, then we should pursue it carefully. Number one, let's look at this. Let's look at this. Anger is precious. Number number one, anger is precious. Verse 26, it, it kind of, it's a command. It's a command that is to be repeated. There is a repeated nature of this command. You should be anger, angry in your life. There should be a time for anger in your experience. How does the Bible see anger? It's not necessarily here, I wouldn't say, a problem that we should just get rid of or stifle. It seems to be, like I've said, a a human capacity. God gives many things. God gives us emotions for a reason, to experience this life in a certain way. God gives us happiness. God gives us sorrow. These are all human um, capabilities. As a matter of fact, if you don't have happiness, if you don't have sorrow, if you don't have that ability, capability, to feel a certain way, something is, is wrong with you in, in a human sense. And, and we could also say if you cannot be angry in a right sense, there is also something deficient. Anger is basically defined like this. It is basically this. It, it, is, it is you stating that you are against something. You stand opposed to something. That, that is what anger is in, in a very simple way. Uh, David Paulson A writer says this about anger. It is active displeasure towards something that is important enough to care about. When you're angry about something, you are displeased with something. But you're also saying, this is important to care about. Now, some of you, maybe in your life right now, are angry about a lot of things. But if you were to examine them, are they important to care about in terms of God's glory? That's what you need to ask yourself. This, this, this is what anger is. If you're going to think, though, if you're going to think and feel like God or with God in this world, you need to have a capacity for anger. You need to, as his people. It is, it is an essential emotion to the Christian life in following God. Or you can think about it this way. Anger... Anger is absolutely necessary if you are going to have a right relationship with God. If you don't have certain anger, you can't walk with God, follow God in a certain way. You can't be with Him if you are not against sin. To to, to follow God is to, to say, I love you, and I love the things that you love, and I hate the things that you hate. If you're going to follow God, you must be angry. That's what we see. We see God is a God who is perfect, and we see a God is a God who is against some things. He's against sin. Psalm 18, Joel 
read Psalm 18, but Psalm 18.30 says this, this God, His way is perfect. God is perfect, but also in the Bible we see that in in Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And that is, that is, that is what we see in God. We see in God a God who is against certain things. We see him confront the pride and the arrogance of Pharaoh and the, the Egyptians when he frees his people from bondage. And then we see him burn with anger against his own people when they sin against him. He is against them in their sin. We see him bring down proud nation after proud nation through the prophets. We even see this when Jesus comes. We see in John chapter 11, Jesus weep outside of the tomb of Lazarus. And that, of course, is your English translations being nervous to translate weep the way it probably should be translated. If you look at John 11, you can do this tonight or later if you want, you'll see there's a footnote there. When it says Jesus wept, the shortest verse in the Bible, the verse that you all memorize in Awana, and we don't do Awana here, we do uh, Adventure Club. Club. I don't do Adventure Club, apparently. Um, But but that's an easy verse to memorize, John 11, 35. Um, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. That word could be translated wept, but it probably has something more going on there. It could better be translated maybe enraged. Matter of fact, you see Jesus earlier on in the story, in verse 33, deeply moved in his spirit. And there you get a footnote. It could be translated indignant. It seems as though Jesus is full of emotion. And it's not just Jesus crying about losing his friend. It seems to be a picture of Jesus outraged, mixed with grief, over something that is happening. He is angry against sin and its consequences in the world. That's what we see in Jesus. And we even see that in Mark 3. And we also see in the Bible that in order to be in a right relationship with this God, we too must feel a certain way. We must be against certain things. For example, Psalm 97 verse 10. This is a helpful verse. 97 verse 10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Or how about Psalm 119, 103 through 104, How sweet are your words to my mouth, the psalmist writes. And then he writes, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And then in Psalm 139 verse 21, The psalmist is even more direct. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I loathe them who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. Or to put it in the language of Psalm 1, right? You, if you're going to love and follow God, you must hate the counsel of the wicked. You must hate the way of the sinners. You must hate the seat of the scoffers. If you're going to follow God, you must be against certain things. You must have a capacity of anger. That's the only way you can be blessed, according to Psalm 1. And that's not just something that we see in the Old Testament, of course. That's also something that we see in the Bible. 
Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. He, he writes to them for many reasons. It's, it's for restoration. It's for, for helping them come to full repentance. And in that letter, he talks to them about their true repentance. And we see it in 2 Corinthians 10 or 7 verse 10. He says this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear uh, clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourself innocent in this matter. Notice he is describing what godly grief over sin looks like. And you could you could translate that godly grief. This is this is grief that shows that you're with God. That is, that is according to God. That means you're following after God. This is the kind of grief you have over sin. You have all of these things. You have eagerness. You have zeal. You have this, this idea of punishment, fear, longing. But notice the word that he uses there, indignation. Now, now who are you indignant at? In repentance. Where does indignation come in repentance? Well, these Corinthians are perhaps, in a way, against themselves, right? How could we be so foolish to, to ignore and minimize God's apostle and how he sent to us? We have sinned against Paul. They are against themselves in one way. They're also against the cause of their trouble, the sin that has corrupted them, maybe the, the individual who has spread mischief against the apostle Paul. But they also probably are indignant, angry at their inability to see and perceive and discern sin. You guys ever get upset with uh, your inability to discern and fall for stupid traps? You ever get mad at how foolish sin makes you look and feel? This is true repentance. There's a bit of indignation there. And of course, if we were to jump back to Ephesians 4, there is another option. If if you don't have this capacity, you can't really follow God very well. You can't love the things that he loves and hates the things that he hates. In fact, if you don't have a capacity to, to hate sin the way God hates sin, you are something called past feeling. You are something called indifferent. You are something called callous. And that is the description of the result, the long-term effect of sin in the heart. In, in Ephesians 4, we talked about this. In Ephesians 4, 19, it, it, it shows the result of sin, the life, the, the, the end result of sin in the life. And it's, it's this, they have become callous. They are without feeling they, they don't have a problem with sin in their life. Sin doesn't make them blush. Sin doesn't make them uncomfortable. Sin doesn't make them angry. They are past feeling. In fact, he says in verse 19, therefore they have to give themselves over to it more and more and in greater and greater portions because sin just doesn't feel exciting anymore. You're past feeling. No, to be the people of God, you have to have a capacity. A capacity to hate the things God hates. Anger is precious. Anger is precious. And we could say it just simply like this. It will do the following things. Righteous anger will do the following things in your life. It will make you incapable 
of being indifferent towards sin. That's why God gives you anger, controlled by the Holy Spirit, but he gives you this so you are incapable of being indifferent towards sin. It it will remove, it it will make you desire to remove compromising situations and sin from your life. It will move you to restore and resolve good relationships that you should have in your life. It will also cause you to remove negative influences on your life. It will cause you to be a defender to the defenseless. It will cause you to be a befriender of the friendless. It will, it will enable you, strengthen you to stand for truth when nobody else around you wants to. But mainly we see you need to be angry in order to fight sin in your own heart and in your own life. If you don't have that, you can't follow God in a way that's pleasing. See, it's, it's very precious. It's very precious. But, but you can only have it in its precious uh, sense if you are pursuing it through a mind that's being continually renewed to, to know the things that God loves and to know the things that God hates. If you, if you do not know what God loves and what God hates, you cannot actually pursue and use this capability that he gives you. But it is a very precious thing. Now, there's a ton more that I could say, and and I won't. And to prove to you that I won't say it, I have put it in handout form for you. So, if you're interested in thinking about the causes of my anger, by the way, the title of this handout is Angry Much? (laughs) I just thought of that in three seconds. Uh, The causes of my anger and the results of my anger, this is just some notes that I took down from the book of Proverbs. It's very helpful, and I would encourage you all to look at it. Um, I'll give it to you afterwards. I mean, your small group leaders can choose to do something with it or not. That's up to them. But let's, let's look at this. Let's, let's just use the few minutes we have left, not just to, to meditate and to think about the, the preciousness of anger. Anger is precious, and we want to emphasize that. But notice also what he says here. Anger is also perilous. Notice what he says there in verse 26. Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and look at the peril and give no opportunity to the devil. The the basic sense here is you notice how anger can quickly go wrong on you. Notice how it can quickly become sinful if you sit on it for too long or if you you use it in a self-centered, self-motivated way. When is it wrong? It's wrong when you use it to defend yourself, your rights, uh, when you're seeking your own interests, when you're seeking uh, to separate yourself from people that Christ calls you to love instead of the opposite, when it's uncontrolled, when you're a victim of your emotions, when it's destructive. Notice it's kind of an interesting phrase there that he uses in the second half of verse 26, do not let the sun go down in your anger. Now that obviously was an expression in the Old Testament that they, that they would often use to speak about certain time limits, right? You had to pay your, your slave or your servant before the end of the day, before the sun went down. And here, Paul appears to be saying, 
Hey, you shouldn't let yourself sit and stew in your anger. Right anger is constructive anger. It does something about its anger. It goes to God in its anger. But if you sit on your anger for a season, it stokes the fires of bitterness and resentment and malice all the more in your life. And before you know it, you are doing verse 31. That, that is wrong anger. But just to maybe help explain this a little bit, in, in contrast, r- righteous anger, if we could call it that in verse 26, seeks, seeks fellowship. It seeks to restore what sinful anger seeks to break. A righteous anger sees, sees the corruption of your life that sin is causing and seeks to remove it. Righteous anger sees yourself and thinks intentionally about your problems and seeks to entrust your problems to God. Notice what it says in in Romans 12, 18-19. It says this, As far as it depends on you, you should live peaceably with all. But beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to God. Notice, righteous anger exists but it entrusts judgment and wrongs against you to God. And maybe we could clear it all up by just kind of saying it like this. If you have an anger problem in your life, your real problem might be that you're not angry enough. You are callous about the role and relationship sin has in your life. You're indifferent towards it. You're past feeling. You're indifferent about the, the problem that your anger is causing in the lives of others and the lives of yourself. You, you, you don't feel strongly enough about your life and your heart. If you have an anger problem, or we could say it like this, if you have an anger problem, you haven't realized, you haven't accepted, you haven't confessed what you really, truly deserve in this life. You must realize that you deserve God's just judgment. As it says in Romans 5.8, God has shown us love in this way while we were enemies. While we were the ones on whom wrath was deserved, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is how you solve the problem of enemy you, of, of anger. You say to yourself, I have deserved all of God's anger and wrath completely justified in myself, but God has shown mercy to me, and in my place Christ died. That is how you fight against anger. The key key to killing anger is confessing to God your anger, but then also confessing the reality that every single sin in the world must must and will be paid by the wrath of God. And we know as believers, right, that all the wrath that God has for us has been taken by Christ. But all sin, all anger will be paid for. If you have an anger problem, you really need to confess your anger. You need to thank God for his control in your life. But you also need to request his help to change and help you start feeling right anger towards the things that you need to be 
angry about. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this evening. We pray that our conversation in small group would be helpful and encouraging and edifying. And we pray that we would truly learn what to be angry about and learn what to confess as sinful anger. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.